My name is Wizzy Brown. And I'm Bryant McDowell. And I'm Molly Keck. And we're with the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service Department of Entomology, and this is Bugs by the Yard, where we hope to increase your enthusiasm about bugs in the urban landscape. Welcome back to Bugs by the Yard for 2024, and Happy New Year. So today we are going to be talking about two low-impact, less toxic, I I don't know. Environmentally friendly. There you go. There's a lot of terminology that can be inserted in this spot. But we are talking about two of those to give you ideas on how they work, how to use them properly, and how they can help. Because both of these, if they're used properly, can actually help you maintain the beneficial insects that you have in your landscape. So, and I apologize ahead of time for my voice and whatnot, because it is cedar season in Texas, and this is me in cedar season. (laughs) So the first one we're going to talk about are insecticidal soaps. And I think Uh, Well, first of all, let's talk about what insecticidal soaps are. Uh, Who wants to cover that one? I can, although you guys might correct me or add more to it because I always tend to keep things simpler than they should be probably. So insecticidal soaps are soaps that are, my understanding is that they're very refined. So they're different from your dish soap or your laundry soap or even your hand soap. So it's I guess in a way, very pure where there's not a lot of additives to it that might cause damage to the plant. And the, it's an insecticide. It affects the insects because my uh, analogy that I always use is just like you use soap to wash the grease off of your dirty dishes and pots and pans. Insects have a layer of wax that covers their body that helps them retain moisture and prevents them from desiccating. And so when you apply insecticidal soaps to the insects, it takes that waxy layer off. It eventually dissolves, I suppose. And they slowly dry out and slowly die a very probably horrible death. Hopefully nobody will be too terribly upset about that one. <laughs> I mean, if you're trying to kill your insects, you, you know, it makes you feel good sometimes to know that. Dehydration is probably a terrible death. I would imagine it probably <laughs> is. <laughs> So soaps are going to be formulated from potassium salts of fatty acids. And like Molly said, the ones that are used for insecticidal uses are going to be different from our household soaps. Brian, do you want to talk a little bit about the benefits or like why why would you choose an insecticidal soap over... Uh, say a botanical product, what would be a benefit of that? And what might be some things that you need to look out for if you're using an insecticidal soap? Yeah. So with the insecticidal soaps, my understanding is that residual is, is very low. So they're not going to stay around very often. I guess there are many things to be kind of mindful about when using them. Not just yeah. I think with insecticidal soaps, like once they dry, then there's no residual. Yeah, that, that's it. Right. Right. <laughs> like yeah. So, uh, it, yeah. So to be aware that it's only good for the time that you basically a- apply it, and of course, there's 
suggestions on, on when that is. So along with the oils that we'll talk about later, but time of day is important. Remember that the longer it is on the plant, the more increased risk that you'll have harm to the plant as well. So humidity kind of plays a role into that. The suggestions that I've always seen are earlier in the morning you would apply versus later in the day, not whenever you're at like prime peak heat, especially here in Texas, whenever we get our 95 plus degree weather, going out and applying that moisture to your plants, having that water sit on those leaves can be bad. The expectation of these soaps working on like the harder bodied insects, so things like beetles and the true bugs, because that cuticle is thicker, maybe they won't be as advantageous for you. I always tell people, if you try to apply this on adult grasshoppers, they're going to fly away and laugh at you. Yeah. Right. It's just, they're going right. to be like, nope, sorry, not happening. <laughs> they just have too much thickness to their ex- things with a thicker, harder things that crunch when you step on them are probably not going to die from insecticidal soap unless you just soak them in it or you like put them in a, you actually drown them in it. It's for the soft bodied smushy stuff. But I do always like to elaborate whenever I say, oh, we're talking about like physical controls in the garden. And I always use the example of my tomato plants and leaf-footed bugs and how you can find a whole bunch of immature leaf-footed bugs on, on one tomato. I'm like, okay, get you a bowl with dish soap, cut off that surface tension and just kind of tap your plant, tap all the bugs into it and drown them. So that's different from me saying, go get dish soap into a sprayer and completely douse your plant. Yeah. In that instance, yeah, you're not applying it to the plant. You can use your dish soap and it's obviously going to be effective. You're drowning them. Whenever you're applying those insecticidal soaps to the plant itself, you're going to go after those kind of soft bodied insects, things like the white flies. What about scales? I mean, I, I would assume soft scales, but like armored scale. I don't think it would do anything to armored scales. Unless it, it can crawlers. because they have that waxy coating and it can actually penetrate that you do multiple applications and okay. obviously it's going to be working better on the crawlers and by multiple applications because this is so quick i would imagine it would be kind of like take a friday saturday sunday and like each morning you're applying or i probably long? wouldn't do that usually what i would say is well first of all apply it in the morning that way it's going to take longer for that product to dry on the plant so it's going to last longer because if you're waiting for it to penetrate the exoskeleton and kind of go in and dissolve the cell membranes by getting rid of the cuticle that's not going to happen immediately necessarily so you might have to wait so i would probably maybe wait three days or so, and then check on things and see if you need to reapply it. Yeah. I was reading repeated application could be needed every three to seven days. There you go. Depending on what you're using, like if it's a commercial insecticidal soap, it may have a, a when you can reapply on the label. That's another thing to be mindful about is whenever you're purchasing insecticidal soaps, whether or not it's something that you're going to be diluting, or if it's something that's like a ready to use that you're just spraying directly onto the plant from the bottle that it came in. But more back to the types of insects. So yes, aphids, mealybugs, thrips, scale insects, as we mentioned, spider mites. Those are main ones that I've found. Do y'all have any other? I, I would say hoppers, maybe some of the smaller immature insect stages, like maybe smaller caterpillars, smaller leaf-footed bugs, or maybe even immature grasshoppers and stuff like that. And you've got to be very thorough when it comes to applying these. So it's not just 
walk past your plant in two seconds and spray, right? Like you've got to go. Not a squirt, squirt. Yeah. You know, up, up under the leaves, especially if any of them have where the leaf grows out of the plant, those kind of nooks and crannies of the plant. I mean, you want to completely cover it. Imagine that it's covered in insects and that insecticidal soap is only good if it touches the insect. Just like keep that in your mind, I guess. And that um, also plays into what kind of insect you're dealing with because if they are an insect that is on the undersurface of the leaf, treating the plant from above is not going to do a whole lot for you. So you need to get maybe the top and the bottom and really kind of pay attention to where those bugs are hanging out. Mm -hmm. I thought it was kind of interesting. You were asking, Wizzy, about like when you might want to use this instead of maybe botanicals. There's usually no pre-harvest interval. So on many insecticides, including botanicals, it may say, okay, you can apply, but it has to be five days until you harvest whatever that food is. So with insecticidal soaps, there is not that time. So you can spray and then that afternoon you can collect your tomatoes or whatever it might be. Still wash them, but yes, you can, <laughs> you can still harvest them that day. I'm not saying, you know, pick them off the vine and eat them right there. I think the other thing that we do need to mention as we're talking about targeting and maybe something that it's not working, we talked about it not working on things with a hard outer covering and mentioned exoskeletons, but you also have to think they are not going to work very well on insect eggs. If you think about insect eggs, they have a, a corion or a shell and it is there to keep what is inside protected. I mean, it's just like a chicken egg. You know, they're trying to keep the environmental conditions from accessing the inside from whatever. And so that's going to not kill off those insect eggs. So keep that in mind as well. I also thought it was interesting. I kept reading that plants that, and this is super important for Texas because we are going to be in a drought again, even if we get out of this drought <laughs> this year, Yes, um, it's going to be back. But under drought conditions, a lot of plants can be uber duper sensitive to burning with insecticidal soap. So be careful with that. And then also really important for Texas. If the temps are greater than 85, then don't apply it. Well, sometimes we wake up and it's above 85 in, in mm -hmm. July and August. So while it definitely is environmentally friendly, it's more, it's a lot softer on your beneficial insects. There's a lot of reasons why you you would want to use insecticidal soaps over others. It's not without its risks for the plant, not really for your health or environmental health, but for sure for the plant. It is a pesticide, so on the label it is going to tell you whatever personal protective equipment you should use when you are utilizing it, and that is to keep you safe. Yes, I know it's a soap, and we use soap for other things, but there's a reason those things are on the label, so make sure that you're reading that and you're taking that into account. And I think with plant sensitivity, we were talking before we started recording about the different plants and which we're not going to start listing those. If you want the sensitive plants, look that information up online. But plant sensitivity can be influenced not just by the weather, like Molly was talking about, like under drought conditions, hot temperatures. It can also be humidity, depending on the humidity levels, younger transplants or new growth on the plant may be more sensitive and react differently to older, harder or hardened off growth of the plant. And then also 
what can play into this? And I found this interesting because <laughs> this is certainly, it, it's going to vary wherever you are in Texas, but if you mix it with hard water, yeah. that can affect the efficacy of the insecticidal soap. So you have to keep that in mind as to whether you have hard water or not, <laughs> because that can make it, uh, I think it makes it less yeah, it, efficacious. It does. Yeah, it um, it precipitates, precipitates the. Look at us reading the same thing. Say it. Brian. <laughs> you go, you go, you go. It, it, <laughs> it precipitates the fatty acids out of the solution. So I guess the fatty acids are what make it more effective and more, I guess that's what disrupts the cell membranes. I'm assuming. If you spray insecticidal soaps in your koi pond, <laughs> it's not going to be good. So don't use it on plants that are in your pond or, you know, make sure that you're careful or cognizant of any drift that may occur going into water type areas. I saw a recommendation if you wanted to determine whether or not your tap water is good. I mean, you could always just go out and buy pure water to use in, in your mixer if you're diluting. But if you yeah, want to check your water, water, wait, I'm sorry. I want to know what pure water is. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> it is important to use the purest of water. Don't get you some holy water. You need to go to the Alps <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and hike up and get some snowpack and bring it home with you. <laughs> yes, precisely. Or, you know, yeah, dig like 50 feet, go down into the water table. Um, <laughs> you can basically get like a like a mason jar. You can make the dilution in a mason jar, mix it up and let it sit for 15 minutes. Apparently, if the mix is going to look uniform, then it's fine. Milky color is still fine. But if there's like scum or you see a bunch of kind of thicker debris, that that's that precipitate that Molly had mentioned. So um, if you see that, then you need to get a distilled or bottled water. This whole hard water thing that we're talking about, this pertains to when you are mixing your own insecticidal soap from the concentrated formula that you get at the store. If you buy a ready to use kind of spray bottle of insecticidal soap, you don't have to worry about that because it's already mixed and ready to go right out of the bottle. Yeah. Just to clarify. <laughs> We had some trial cucumbers and in, in like a demonstration garden and it was later on in the season, but we kept thinking we should get one more harvest out of those cucumbers and we weren't getting it. That's your downfall right there. Yeah. Well, but then <laughs> we went, uh, we went looking and there were aphids on the underside of the leaves. And so it was stressing the plant out enough that it, it wasn't hurting it, but it wasn't blooming. We went in with, it was a commercial grade insecticidal soap. At least that's what our hort guy said. I didn't really read what the label said, but we, he went and he treated. And like the next day that plant started blooming. So it, while we say it's kind of slow acting, it's still within a day should knock down the softer body things for you. Um, but it was amazing how it knocked them down. Our beneficials was, were still there. And then it allowed that plant to have a little more energy to put out blooms and get that one last harvest before it was time to pull them out of the ground. Last thing that I want to mention goes back to phytotoxicity. So if you are concerned that your plant may be sensitive and you don't want to look it up, you can test a portion of your plant before you spray the whole entire thing. Spot treat a portion of the plant, wait 24 hours and see if you're having problems with the plant. And if it has symptoms, then don't continue use on that plant. 
uh, if it doesn't, then you can go ahead. Are we clear on why we don't use dishwashing or laundry detergents? I mean, one, it's not a pesticide and that's an off-use label. So you shouldn't necessarily spray that onto your plants. But did we talk about the the waxy, greasy stuff? No, 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 we didn't. We didn't actually. You mean on the plants? Yeah. Yeah, no, we didn't. Okay, so if you think about the foliage on a plant, they are going to have a waxy cuticle as well, just like insects. So (laughs) when you are utilizing a laundry detergent or a dishwasher, uh, dish soap that you get kind of out of your kitchen or whatever, those are formulated with special ingredients and they're designed to break down the grease that may be on your dishes and your clothes. And so that same component that breaks down the grease from your pots and pans is going to dissolve that waxy hole that is on the leaf surface. And so that can lead to increased injury to the plant. And so you may be doing more damage to the plant than if you just left the insects to do their thing. They are a contact insecticide. They have to come into contact with the insecticidal soap for it to work. So that means generally that you have to spray it on there because once that product is dry on the surface of the plant, if the insect comes walking over it, it's not going to really do anything. What about use of insecticidal soaps for like as a fungicide? Depending on what the fungus is, it may do something. I know there are some that are formulated to also take care of powdery mildew, but I don't know if it's a like broad spectrum fungicide or if it's just for that particular. And I thought it was more horticultural oils that were more of a fungicide. Typically, if I have a fungal issue, I'm I'm one of those like rip it out and start over type people or just like heavy pruning, you know, making sure you've got good airflow in, in between your plants. There, there's other causes. But so, for example, I'm thinking of like crepe myrtle bark scale and the really nasty mold, sooty molds that'll kind of come from the scale insect. You kind of have to. If you have crepe myrtle bark scale, I don't think that you would need to target the fungus because the fungus is there because of the insects. So you would need to target the insect to get rid of them. So they're not producing honeydew, which is leading to the sooty mold. Mm -hmm. Right. So let's say you already have just like an insane outbreak. You get rid of the scale. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's like a scrubbing component along with this, like just applying a hork oil or insecticidal soap isn't really going to take care of the the stuck on mold. To my understanding, I guess people think, oh, I applied it, it should just disappear. But I, I always say, you know, you need something pretty high pressured or get in there and like scrub off your branches. So high pressure water spray to get rid of, well, I, you can do that to get rid of some of these soft bodied insects as well and the honeydew. But yeah, for crepe myrtle bark scales, since they cover the branches and trunk, a lot of times you need to go in there with a scrub brush, especially if you don't treat like real early in the year before the plant is blooming, you really need to just kind of go in there and physically scrub them off because you don't want to treat when the, the crepe myrtles are blooming because whatever you treat with can possibly get into those blooms and then affect pollinators. 
So our other one that we're talking about today, we talked about the insecticidal soaps. The other one we're talking about is the horticultural oils. And let's just say, you know, I I have that. I don't even know what the the 70s commercial was, or maybe it was in the 80s, that whole you've come a long way, baby crap. Um, (laughs) Whatever that one was. Horticultural oils have come a long way. So before 1945, you only could use horticultural oils on plants when they were in the dormant or non-growing stage. So when they didn't have foliage on them. And that is essentially where the term dormant oil comes from. Those oils were thick or heavy or very viscous. And so they would really kind of be thick and coating the plant. Sticky. And that's why you would have to, yeah, it just, thinking about that touching me is just gross. It's like having tar on you. Yes. The beach. Ew, ew. So- you would put them on the the plant when it was in the dormant stage and just kind of coat the surface and hopefully kill any overwintering insects that are kind of in those nooks and crannies of the plant. But since then, the oils have been, I'm going to say refined, <laughs> kind of they have evolved. And this has led to the term that you hear uh, summer oil or sometimes you'll hear uh, year-round oil, or uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other summer rate. Yeah. But those are oils that can be used in both the growing season and the dormant season. These days, when you're looking at the term dormant oil versus summer oil, it's not necessarily referring to the oil being like really heavy versus a lighter viscosity it's essentially telling you hey if it's a dormant oil you need to use this in the winter time when the plant is dormant if it's a summer oil you can use it at other times and with us being here in texas if you are a human being that is listening and you live in texas summer oil for us does not mean that you should apply it in summer <laughs> because our summers are a little bit different than the rest of North America. So you kind of have to keep that in the back of your head. So essentially, and you're going to hear this a lot when we talk about pesticides, but most horticultural oils that you find these days can be used essentially both in the dormant and the growing season. But it's always, always, always a good idea to read your label to check when you should be applying that because it will be on there. Who wants to talk about, well, wait, let me get this boring part out of the way. Um, (laughs) Oils, (laughs) oils do have to be mixed with water. There is an emulsifier that is added in to the pesticide bottle that you buy when you go to the store. And that essentially just allows that oil and water to mix into a solution. uh, Solution, yeah. So a emulsive oil. (laughs) So that if you look at the label, you're going to see that in the it's not going to list it specifically, but that is one of the things that is in that inert ingredients thing when you look at a horticultural oil label. But horticultural oils are saturated paraffinific petroleum oils. That is what they're made from. 
and you can get into like really heavy information on viscosity and gravity and distillation and not my thing. <laughs> so, but other than the paraffinific or mineral oil, isn't there like there's technically would the plant derived oils be considered horticultural oils like neem oil and then Yes. So, yeah. So, and that's the other thing. There there are those as well. You have the straight up horticultural oil, which is that derived from petroleum stuff. But then you also have oil formulations of, I'm going to say various botanicals, right? Because they're all plant-based. Yeah. Like soybean, cottonseed. But I was also reading, so like neem, the active ingredient in the neem root or plant or seed or whatever. So the active ingredient in in neem is as a directin. But if it's a if it's neem oil, then they it lacks that active ingredient. Huh, that's weird. I re- so it says most neem based horticultural oils will be listed as clarified hydrophobic extract of neem oil and will lack as a directin. Huh. Which I learned my new thing for today. I don't believe it. I just don't believe. <laughs> There's that fire ant mound stuff that is uh, delimonene, which is a citrus based oil. Yeah. Because if you use that to manage fire ant mounds, you always kind of get a yellow ring around the yes. mound from the oil where it causes that phytotoxicity. A dead spot in the grass. <laughs> We did talk about summers in Texas and like high humidity, right? So you want to be mindful. Not only high humidity. Yeah. Death star on the plants. Uh, And, you know, we say like morning and night. But so I, I, any suggestions I've seen for horticultural oils, uh, this is an insane low temperature to me. It says between 40 and 75 degrees. I like that threshold of 75 because that tells me like, okay, it's 7 p.m. to like 7 a.m. in the summer. I can apply. I like to do it at night. So it's on there. In my mind, I'm like, okay, that's the lowest posture. If I do it at night, it'll sit through there. And with neem oil. So I'm sorry, you said, what's the low? The high was 75 and then 40. Yeah. Yes. That's different from what I researched though. Mine said... Don't apply if the if they're above 85, temps are above 85, but then also in cool weather between 50 and 60 because of something about making sure the nightly lows don't freeze. And then I guess that oil freezes on the plant and could cause damage, causes phytotoxicity, I guess. Oh, keeps proper viscosity. So it can't be too oh, cold or it won't be. Or it won't, it won't flow right. Yeah, that makes more that sense. That makes sense. And yeah, how those work too, because it's disrupting that surface tension. So as it sits on the plant, it kind of creates a coating in a way that kind of waxy. If you've ever put neem oil all over your garden, you'll be very familiar with. Please don't dismount. put neem oil all over your garden. Target your treatment. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but if you've ever put it, it once you f- feel that plant, though, I mean, it is it's kind of like you haven't washed your hair in a couple of days, right? Like you it has like a greasy component. But my point is, I'm going back to not only is it actively working on, on what you're hitting, but it leaves a type of residual and not just for your pest species. And it's not just neem oils, any of those plant based, you know, you mentioned citrus earlier, a lot of those are already going to be kind of a, a repellent in of themselves like the in my experience, I find that people, when you're dealing with the citrus oils or the clove oils or 
Um, any of those like aromatic ones, they tend to over apply because they smell good. Yeah. And so you really need to pay attention to your application when you're using those type of products. Don't don't get carried away. If I decide to apply oil when it is too hot outside, what am I going to do to my plant? Burn it. You get phytotoxicity. Yeah, burn it. <laughs> How's that? Fry it. Yeah. Um, I mean, give it a sunburn. I, that's what I I always say. Like, have you ever put on you know, tanning lotion? yourself up the... with baby oil. <laughs> exactly. What happens to your skin whenever you put oil over it and go outside? It's like magnification. Yeah. Of oh my God, that's terrible. Do you remember sometimes people would put Crisco on them? Like they're just baking themselves. I had neighbors when I was a kid, they would take sticks of, well, it's probably like margarine or parquet or whatever that yeah. stuff was from the 70s. And okay. they would like literally rub the stick of butter all over them. And I'm like, that is so disgusting. You are cooking yourself. Ew. Preparing for Thanksgiving. I'm going to equate this to the insecticidal soap, which is kind of why I put these two together when I was doing this. The phytotoxicity that can happen with horticultural oils is very similar to the stuff when we're dealing with the soaps, but it's caused by different things. So you want to make sure that you're not applying your horticultural oils essentially to plants that are stressed. So if, if they're under water stress, so drought conditions, if we have high humidity, if we have high temperature, if it is young, tender foliage, um, and sometimes it's just the species of plant again. And again, I'm not going to go through those. There are some plants that are more affected by this type of thing. So you want to make sure that you're not going to burn your plant. Could be trying to help you just make it worse, which would be terrible. Molly, what do we kill with horticultural oils? Same as insecticidal soaps. Both of these are broad spectrum, but they tend to be harsher on the softer bodied things, which is good. I think the reason why they are so benign or soft on your beneficials is because there's no residual. It's just it, just like the insecticidal soap, it must be contacting the insect that you plan to target. Otherwise, it won't do anything. There's no after effects. Once you've, it's not a spray and pray kind of thing. It's actually look at that plant, find that pest touch them with it. Soft things, aphids, mites, scales, even some of a little bit harder things that you wouldn't think about. So like plant bugs, lace bugs, soft caterpillars. Most caterpillars are soft, but caterpillars. When I think about caterpillars, like soft caterpillars, I think of like the, the smaller ones. Like if you spray the full grown tomato hornworm caterpillar, it's not going to do anything. Yeah. If you do this on like one that just hatched out of the egg, then it's going to do something. Right. Did we talk about how it clogs up there? Like it's no, that was, that was okay. the next question. So how, how does the horticultural oil work? How does it kill what's going on there? To me, this is what makes it make sense that it could impact multiple things. But when insects breathe, they don't breathe through their mouth and into their lungs like we do. They breathe through holes in the sides of their bodies that we call spiracles. And those spiracles are outside, is like the outside vacuum. And there's a tube connected to the spiracle that draws the oxygen into their body. And so when you apply horticultural oils to them and get a good coating of them, you actually clog up those breathing holes. So they suffocate to death. And so its mode of action is either it's a physical pesticide 
but it will suffocate them. It could disrupt the cell membrane function. And then in some instances, it can also be a repellent. Think about baby aphids. So immature, uh, freshly birthed <laughs> aphids, and they've got little t tiny mouth parts. So if you have an oil coating that surface, their mouth part may not be able to penetrate the uh, surface tension of that oil. And so it can actually cause them to be repelled and not be able to feed. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking about adult stink bug, it'd be like, boop, and be fine. <laughs> Another difference that I found, maybe you all have more experience with it, but um, insecticidal soaps, Wizzy talked about how the eggs are not going to be affected just by that soap. But the, with the horticultural oils, I've seen that those will kill the eggs because of how they're coating. Essentially, it's kind of breaking down that protective sheet. Even though the chorion is there to protect the egg, there is still transpiration occurring where there's oxygen transfer. Yeah. And so if it's coated with oil, then that it's essentially going to take care of that too, right? That's what I read about. Yeah, it has to do with essentially it's it's all means of suffocation and, and breaking that, that surface tension of, of the egg or things like mosquito larvae, like applying those oils. We need to, if we're going to talk about mosquito larvae, <laughs> we need to back up a minute. So obviously mosquito larvae are going to be in standing water. And one of the control methods for mosquito larvae is to put a oil on the surface of the water. And if you look closely at mosquito larvae, which I'm sure all of our listeners do, this <laughs> is like what, what you live for, right? And they have, have it, you should. Because yes, exactly. They have a tube that goes off of the tip of their abdomen or their butt, if you want to anthropomorphize it. So they got a tube and they actually will stick that tube up out of the water to breathe and get air. And then they'll do their little wiggly thing and go down and get food and yada, yada, yada. So that's essentially how they breathe. So when you're using the oil on the surface of the water, that tube is then blocked by that oil. And so they can't breathe and they end up dying. And it's, I think it's like a really super cool thing, but I do want to mention, this is kind of similar to our soap story. Oils that you find in your household are not oils that you use to control insects. And we generally don't have people, or at least I haven't had people say, hey, can I put this olive oil on my plant to kill my bugs? They, they That doesn't yeah. work in their brain. But I do have people all the time like, hey, can I pour this olive oil on this water to get rid of these mosquitoes? And while it will kill them, I actually, I did an experiment uh, several years ago where I took the actual, I think I used olive oil because that's what I had in the pantry. And I coated the surface, but then I calculated using that versus the other. So generally it's an oil. Yes, it coated the surface and it killed them. But the cost of using that product was so much more expensive than mm -hmm. if you went out and bought the actual pesticide version of the oil. And so, I mean, you're, you're not doing yourself any favors. So again, the oils that you find for cooking... <laughs> are not pesticides. That's not what they're there for. They're meant to be for other things. So 
if you're using oils to control mosquitoes in standing water, you need to use those products that are specifically labeled for that purpose. I knew a guy, a rancher that had a tank or, you know, a big old body of water for mainly feeding wildlife. I don't think he had cows or anything on it. And he used mineral oil or some other oil on that water. He didn't have fish in it. It was just meant for a water source for the mosquitoes and whatever it was, because he said it was cheaper than, said it was cheaper than BT, I guess. But he ended up giving diarrhea to all the wildlife that was around. Oh, no. Yes. It just like ran right through them. <laughs> Poor babies. Oh, that's true because mineral. Ah, oh, I didn't think about that. People give. I, 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 I had a sick. If you're constipated, yeah. right? Yes. I, I had a sick cat that we had to give mineral oil to because he, anyway, he had mega colon. I had to give him mineral oil. And I do remember he was like a bingo dabber. Just, <laughs> oh my gosh. You know how cats are. They sit on everything. Um, and that was terrible. There's no way to live. <laughs> oh, you put a diaper on that cat goodness i did <laughs> <laughs> i bet that did cat was diaper. thrilled with the diaper did it oh, stay was, was the main with a shaved butt so he looked ridiculous oh it, my it, goodness it, hannah's three-legged cat kept keeps peeing like in his sleep or he went through a phase so we tried to put a a diaper on him but a he's too fat and b you can't keep a diaper when you don't have a second leg to stick out of it it would fall off all the time and then she get really mad at him. <laughs> I can't imagine. I, I would be so confused. Like the tail hole would be the leg hole or. Well, yeah, it was a dog one, but he, I mean, I got his tail through it and his other leg, but then he just had that nubbin and it would like go, it goes into his body and then he can push it out. But so he would like draw it into the hole and then pull the, the diaper down. This may be a question that does not stay in the podcast, but I do, I'm wondering right now, because mineral oil, the one that I was using was very like gelatinous, very thick. Are oils different when they are applied to like a standing body of water, a, a tank or a stock tank? Or I mean, is that where the difference in the, the amount that you're applying is coming in? Does some spread out more evenly? Is that a thing? The big thing when you're using the pesticide formulation of oils and whatnot, they have that emulsifier in it that is going to help them spread more evenly because you're mixing that with water, thinning it out, emulsifying it. And so it's going to get that coating that you want. Whereas if you're just using straight up, which I our mineral oil is not gelatinous. So are you yeah. sure yours isn't expired? Yeah, mine's well, real. It, it ours might is just be like... like Thin. Mixed with something very, very thin. It came in a bottle from the vet, so I had no idea. But yeah, yeah that might be oh. like a special formulation from the vet that they added something. Are you sure it's not? It's mineral oil and not. Um, oh gosh, what is that oil that people? There's another type of oil that you take. Um, starts with a C. Oh, I have no idea. Then I thought it was mineral oil. Hold on, let me Google it. I guess because I'm in my head, what I'm picturing is the difference in. Uh, let's say we've all seen how you apply or, or like if you were to take vegetable oil and put that into a bowl of water, mm -hmm. let's say you just did like half a teaspoon or something. It's all going to kind of clump together in the center mm -hmm. and be floating in the water, right? Right. Versus castor oil. <gasps> there that. you go. Castor oil. Castor oil. Ooh, I don't know. Maybe. But anyway, so yes, you have that versus that oily film that you'll see. Uh, if you have like gas in the water where it's like that rainbow film. Mm -hmm. 
I'm imagining the difference in this. I know that those are two completely different products. I get that, but um, but that I'm also assuming... has to do with the viscosity of stuff. So is it like a really thick oil? Because I mean, if you think about like mineral oil, I, that's like a, a thinner oil, in my opinion, than olive oil. Right? Yes. Okay. To me, so you're going to have different levels of viscosity on the oils. And point is the ones that you're purchasing. There's actually, they, they have a scale that measures that for oils uh, actually. <laughs> so. Gotcha. Right. But not, if you're. If not you're what I want to get into, but. <laughs> that's already taken a con into consideration and, and the. Yeah. Application. So it, if you're buying off. a pesticidal oil product, they have done all of the heavy lifting for you. And so you don't have to kind of figure things out. So you just need to read the label and apply the product like they tell you to, and it'll do what it's supposed to do. I know a lot of times people want to concoct things in their house and they think that that's going to be easier or quote unquote safer or whatever, but uh, you know, you can, you can mix some pretty nasty stuff in your house if you don't know what you're doing. So let's not do a chemistry lab that can possibly lead to problems. Plus it can be so expensive. Like if you, olive oil is so expensive, it's not yeah. cheap at all. So you could, you know, horticultural oils, much more economical. Yeah. Cause you get that big old thing. So people are going to utilize these as more of that organic, but biological methods, plant-based, all safer um, than these. Less toxic, um, environmentally friendly. Assuming you're paying attention and taking into consideration the application instructions. But yes, more so than these conventional synthetic pesticides. That being said, utilizing them, you can use other control methods as well that are going to increase your effective program. Don't go into it, just select one product, apply it one time and, oh, it didn't work. So that's not for me. Like you have to be vigilant. Um, and there's other things that you can do in, you know, in, in the garden as far as any sort of control practices or mechanical control. But on the flip side, do not mix pesticides together. There are some that you can mix together, but it again, it will tell you on the label, this can be combined with blah, blah, blah. But that's more, I would say, more for professionals doing that sort of thing. I wouldn't recommend that to homeowners that don't have that knowledge. But I also think it is very important to let them know that they need to not necessarily use the, the same control method over and over and over again, because that's going to build resistance. So you do want to incorporate various types of control into an IPM program but you also want to give something time to work. So don't think that, oh, well, I treated with horticultural oil and I still have insects on my plant the next morning. You know, wait a couple days, check things out. Everything isn't going to like die immediately. <laughs> I do have one question. Do y'all have any experience of utilizing like horticultural soaps, oils, along with something like a like BT or spinosad? Like at the same time? Not at the same time, but let's say you did like a rotation, maybe like early in the spring, once you first start planning, you go with those insecticidal soaps 
oils, but later in the season, if you want to kind of, let's say you're still having a problem a month later, but you're in those like hotter months, June-ish, utilizing something like BT Spinosa then. I always think of using either oils or really maybe even more so soaps to get you a quick knockdown, but not a permanent knockdown. And then using other products to kind of, to keep the population of the pests suppressed if it's required, if they rebound. So typically for me, I steer clear of oils. If I were going to use oils in Texas and I I was a homeowner, I would maybe look at spraying them on plants that are dormant Mm -hmm. just because I don't have to worry about being concerned about killing my plant because it's in the growing season because it's even now, I mean, I know it's January and it's like 70 degrees. So it's, that's not normal, but yes. So, I mean, we have all of these like major temperature changes going on at times of the year. And so using oils can get really tricky. And I've had people ask me in presentations, well, can I use this in the morning before it gets hot and then it's not going to do well if you use it in the morning and then it ends up being 105, it's still frying your plant if it's going to be on there and that oil isn't going to go away immediately. So I tend to steer clear of those with insecticidal soaps. I do use those a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not even going to say a lot. That's probably my first go-to. Usually I try to do like vacuuming, hand picking, weighted out water sprays to, yeah, you know, are, is this really a problem? You know, are there enough bugs for me to justify doing anything? Probably not because I like taking pictures of the bugs. (laughs) But if something gets really ridiculous, like aphids or something, the first thing I do is like an insecticidal soap. But usually I only do one treatment because that insecticidal soap usually knocks down the population to an acceptable level where then I can have ladybug larvae or surfid fly larvae or whatever come in and kind of start keeping that population under control for me. And then I don't have to use anything. So I... I haven't gotten to the point, I guess, where I have to incorporate something else in there, but I'm I'm also a very kind of hands-off person. I don't worry over my plants too much, mm-hmm. and I, I a lot of times I just wait it out and see what happens. Yeah. I'd say if I, I'm the same, I don't use a lot of horticultural oils. I love insecticidal soap. I do like neem oil though. Um, and I got to look and see if my neem oil is the oil or if it's the, has the active ingredient in it. You got to look at mine too. I'm curious because I, I didn't I'd never know that, that was a thing. thought of it. I know. But where I've used the oils the most is when I've had major scale issues on a shrub, like hard, major hard scale issues where the tree, the shrubs were dying and I, I lost a couple of them, but for like aphids or other things and, you know, other soft body things, I don't really I don't need to. Yeah. I've used neem oil on like a couple of my house plants that got a uh, scale, mm-hmm. but other than that, uh, because I'm too lazy to do the whole Q-tip alcohol yeah. rubbing them off. That's not going to happen. The plant can die for all I care at that point. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd say I'm more afraid of the oils than I am of the insects on the plants. Yeah. Or at least not necessarily the oils, but 
my use of the oil yes. yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> using it at use. the wrong time of the year and environmental conditions. Cause I don't know what, you know, today might not be the same as tomorrow and it could be disastrous, but mm-hmm. anyway. All right. Thank you for joining us with our first episode for 2024. Currently working our lineup for this year's topics. So if there is something that you want to hear us ramble on about, let us know. We are more than happy to contact you. And I do believe the email is in the outgoing thing, I think. If yes, it's not I'd... show notes or something. Okay. Yeah. So Um, Yeah, so we'd be interested to hear from you. So let us know if there's something that you want us to cover. And we are more than happy to do that. So again, Happy New Year. And thanks for joining us. Howdy to our listeners and fellow bug nerds. We want to take the time to tell you to check out our show notes on each episode and for more information and supplemental materials on the topics covered. Additionally, if you have any questions or recommendations for what you may want to learn more about, you can send us an email to www.bugsbytheyard at gmail.com. If you enjoy this content and would like to learn more about structural pests that may invade your home, check out our other podcasts, Unwanted Guests. Brought to you by Texas A&M University AgriLife Extension and the Department of Entomology. As always, please subscribe or follow the podcast feed to make sure you never miss an episode.